Hey guys, this is Will. Welcome to episode two of Historical Context, the VHS tape. Today we'll be talking about VHS tapes, VCRs, and everything that goes along with the VHS tape and VCR. So the first thing I want to go ahead and do is give you a snapshot of kind of the lay of the land. So VCR technology, even though it was invented, I think, in the late 50s or early 1960s, really didn't grab a hold of the consumer electronics market until the late 70s or early 1980s and then it continued to really gain in popularity all throughout the 80s and eventually peaked sometime in the i think early to mid 1990s where almost everyone had a vcr and you know the video rental market was booming and it was you know everyone was renting videos and buying videos and things like this so this was a time that was before the HDTV. There's no flat screens, no LCDs, no plasmas, just CRT, so cathode ray tube TVs. These are big, these are boxy. If you were to look at one now, the resolution, uh, you would think it's terrible. Um, there's still a few of them around. Some people have old TVs and, and things like that. But for the most part, all the CRT TVs were you know, disappeared probably before, you know, 2008 or something like that. And just to kind of frame things a little bit more as someone who remembers that early VCR era, in the late 70s and in the early 80s, there were still people, it was common to know people that hadn't switched over to a color TV yet. It was still very rare to know someone who had no TV, but there, you know, were a few families in, in town where I had friends and they just hadn't ever bought a TV or they couldn't afford one. Um, there was more people who actually never had moved to the color TV. So they had gotten a black and white TV because they were considerably less expensive in the seventies and they were still using it and hadn't upgraded to a color TV yet because back in those days, TVs were still very expensive most families only had one tv it was also rare for a family unless they were very wealthy or, or well to do or were really into electronics which weren't that many people in the late 70s or early 80s it was it was very rare for families to have more than one tv so the typical household if they had a color tv it was usually they had one it was in the family room and if your dad wanted to go ahead and watch, you know, five hours of The Rockford Files on Saturday, then that was the only show that was on and you really couldn't watch anything else. And also back in these days, people would brag about things like having a remote control because that was one of the other new features that had come out with some of the newer color TVs is being able to change the channel with, with the remote. And prior to that, you walked up to the TV and you had a dial and the dials usually only went to, I think, 25 or 30. So you could only have a maximum of, you know, 25 or 30 channels, and every one was an analog. So you switched it from channel two to channel four, and that would change the frequency that the TV was receiving from the antenna because cable was just in its infancy, and overwhelming majority of people used an old-fashioned antenna to get their channels. And in fact, in the very early days, so late 70s, early, early 80s, you know, probably pre-1984 uh, and going on to 85 and 86, but less so, 
you could actually go to a video rental store and rent the VCR machine itself and a couple movies. And people would do this as well. So rather than investing in buying a VCR, you would go to the video rental store and you'd rent a VCR, hook it up to your TV, also rent some videos, and then you'd watch the videos. Once you were done with the videos, you would return the VCR or say there was a big football or basketball game, you know, coming up on the TV and you wanted to record it. Well, people would also go to the store and they would rent a VCR and they would buy a blank tape from Radio Shack or something like that. And they would plug their VCR into the TV. They would record the Super Bowl or, you know, their college team for, for a bowl game or something like that or a program they really wanted to watch once they were done. They would keep the tape that they had purchased with the recorded TV show or sports program on it and then return the VCR machine to the local video rental store. So it seems really weird that you, if you think about it kind of in today's terms, that you would go to a store and rent a DVD player or an Apple TV or something like that and then you watch whatever you want to watch and you want to return it. But again, you have to remember that back when the VCR was just starting to gain popularity, the consumer electronics industry wasn't this giant booming thing. Technology, you know, was, wasn't adopted nearly as quickly, in, in my opinion. And the, ch the pace of change was, was much slower than it is today when you kind of have new things coming out all the time. And you, everyone's familiar with Apple TV or a DVD player, or upgrades, different formats, things like that. The VCR was really a huge game changer which we'll discuss, um, and it, it gained massively in, in popularity as the 80s went on. But in those first early days, when it first became available to consumers, a lot of people didn't really see the need to use it more than occasionally. And this is for several reasons. One, there wasn't really a home video market two people were still getting used to the idea of recording things off of their tv and things like that and three the cost was fairly prohibitive uh, vcrs when they came out were, were very expensive and as i mentioned before this was still a transition phase where people had held off for like a decade or more before going from a black and white tv that they maybe bought in the 60s or 70s to upgrading to a color TV. And at least from what I remember, families usually had TVs for 10 or 15 years because it was a big investment. And maybe one Christmas you guys would get a color TV after having a black and white TV for the past eight or nine years that you know you had, your parents had gotten from their parents or something like that. And to give you an idea of how big of a deal VCRs were, I still really vividly remember when my family got a VCR. I think it was Christmas of either 1986 or 1987. And my grandparents had given it to us and we opened it as a family and everyone's like, wow, a VCR, you know, uh, I can't believe we have our own VCR because we had some friends and things like that in the town. So, so who had had VCRs before and I'd gone over and watched movies and things like that. Uh, so we get the VCR and everyone's really excited. And we had at that time only, you know, one local video store in the town. So after we unwrapped it and my dad spent like an hour and a half trying to hook it up to the TV, 
because we had never hooked up a VCR before and our TV was really old. It was color. It didn't have a remote, but our TV didn't have a lot of input or output jacks. So we had one input for the antenna and no other inputs. And so we had to unplug the antenna and then plug the VCR in. And, and, and that was how we hooked up the VCR to the TV. So more modern TVs started to have multiple inputs, you know, where you could hook up the VCR at the same time you have your, your antenna. And so we ended up getting this little switchboard thing that made the outlook or the output on the back of the TV split into two so that we could hook up an antenna and also hook up the VCR. And that way we could record things off the TV. But anyways, we opened it up, my dad set it up, and then we didn't have any VCR VHS tapes or any movies to watch. So then we went to the local video rental store and in those days you had to sign up for a membership which was all by paper and they give you a carbon paper copy and they give you a little card and then you're able to go and pick out what movies you want to watch and rent those VHS tapes. And again, this was almost 30 years ago, 29, 28 years ago, and I still remember the movies that my dad got. My dad got King Solomon's Mines, which I think starred Sharon Stone, and then Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And, you know, we put in the video of the VHS tape for Indiana Jones and, you know, we watched it as a family for about 15 minutes. And then my dad's like, ah, this is PG-13 or something like that. So he paused it and then put the other movie in and we watched that because I think it was PG. And then after we went to bed, he finished watching the movie. But we had a VCR and I, you know, remember thinking like, this is really, really awesome. I'm going to be like the third coolest kid in school. And just as a side note, where I went to school, there was one kid and his dad was like an out of work stunt man or something like that. And he would ride up to school and pick up his son on a motorcycle and had a leather jacket. So he was always going to be the coolest kid in school. The best you could do was number two. And I think another kid in my class had already had a, a VCR and several VHS tapes and had thrown like an afternoon birthday party where we all watched a Disney movie. So he was number two, but then my family had a VCR. So now I felt like, okay, I'm the number, the third coolest kid in my, in my school or at least my class, but it was a, it was a really big deal and, and, and really exciting. And you kind of felt that you were, you know, joining something or, or getting something rather that you were going to get a lot of use out of. And it was just going to kind of open up this entire whole new world for you that you could go and rent, you know, any one of hundreds or, or thousands of, of video cassettes and then watch them because Going back to these days, you have to remember if there was a movie in the theater and you didn't see it and it's not going to be shown on, on TV, that was it. You, you missed it and you're not going to see it again because you don't have a VCR and they're not showing it on TV and it's no longer in the theater. So it's the same thing with the TV show because there was no on demand back then. So if you really wanted to watch a TV show and you couldn't watch it because it was on too late or it was on and you were, you know, you were out of the house and you missed it. That's it. It's gone. It just disappears into the ether. You'd have to wait weeks or months or even longer than that for a rerun to play. So if it's the early eighties and a hit show is on and it's the middle of the season or the beginning of a the season, they're not going to be showing a rerun for a long time. And so you missed the show and you're like, man, I don't know who the boss is. 
and I'm not going to find out who the boss is for four more months until they start showing reruns of the first season. And if I don't see it then, then I'm not going to be able to see this for years until the show goes into syndication. And even if the show was shown more than once in a short period of time, it was never convenient. So they'd show a new episode once, and then you'd have to look in the TV guide for weeks out in advance before you're able to actually find when that show is playing again. And if the show is playing at a really inconvenient time, say you're at school or you had a work or something like that, and it always played before you got home, then you'd miss out on that unless you had a VCR, in which case you could record all your programs and watch them, you know, whenever you had time. So case in point with this, kind of the real life example was that I mentioned I got a VCR in like 1987, which was Christmas, right about to turn it into 1988. So as a young child of the 80s, like many other children, I was a huge fan of the Star Wars franchise. And I had gone to Disneyland and gone on the Star Wars ride, Star Tours, and I had read comic books and things like that. But I'd never actually seen any of the Star Wars movies because I wasn't born yet when they came out in the theaters. So you can imagine I, I really like Star Wars, but the Star Wars movies weren't shown on TV ever. And they weren't being played in theaters because they had already gone past their theatrical runs even though they were huge box office successes some of the biggest movies that had ever been released once it went through its box office run that was that uh, it was released into a home video store oftentimes years after its box office release especially those early days late 70s early 80s and if you didn't have a VCR, there was really no way for you to pick up on, on these movies until you got a VCR. So oftentimes what would happen is you'd lag way behind for year after year after year, and then you'd get a VCR. Once your family got a VCR, then the whole, like I said, the whole world is kind of opened up to you. And you got to go back in time and watch all these movies that you had missed. So Star Wars had this huge cult following, right? Comics. Disneyland, tons of merchandise, video games. I played the video games. I owned Star Wars toys. I knew who Luke Skywalker was. I knew who Han Solo was. You know, it was really engrossing to, to kind of play with the action figures in the games, but I'd never actually seen the movies that kind of laid the groundwork and the foundation for this entire universe until I got a VCR and then one or two years later, when I was old enough to be able to ride my bike up to the video rental store, I could actually go ride up to the store, take our family's account, and then pay $1.50 to rent Star Wars A New Hope, ride back down to my house, put in the VCR, watch it. Oh, man, this is the coolest thing, you know, then rewind it, put it back in its case, drive it up. A couple weeks later, get The Empire Strikes Back, do the same thing, do the same thing with The Return of the Jedi. And it was like that for not just Star Wars, but literally every film, right? Gone with the Wind, The Godfather Part 1, The Godfather Part 2. So once you had this machine, it really opened up a whole kind of world uh, for a lot of different, different people. Okay, so you have heard me wax poetic about a VCR and the world that it opens and all these video movies that I watched, okay? But we're gonna go right back down to the basics. What is a VCR? So a VCR actually stands for a video cassette recorder and it's an analog device. So it's not like a CD and it's not like a DVD, but it's basically 
a tape cassette that's larger. It has a magnetic strip that's spooled around a spool. That magnetic strip is going to hold all the audio data and, or audio output and all the visual output that is read by your VCR and then transmitted to your TV. Your TV then broadcasts to you the audio and visual output from the tape. And I really want to stress this because if you've ever taken apart like a CD player or a DVD player or an HD DVD player, they're pretty simple devices in that they have like an optic reader and then a bunch of circuits. But if you take apart a VCR, there's tons of moving parts. There's spools, there's little robot arms, latches, levers, you name it. You open up the cover of a VCR and you're looking at a bunch of different mechanical parts because what had to happen was that when you inserted the the tape okay the vhs tape and by the way vhs is going to stand for video home recording system but when you inserted that tape there was a lever that lifted up the top of the tape and then there was another lever that pulled the tape out of the spool on the vhs and then put it onto what's known as a head a head is basically a cylinder and then there's two or three other different spools that would grab the tape and pull it through smoothly and then rewind the tape back on the other side because the VHS tape has two spools, a left spool and a right spool. And as you watch the tape, it would pull the tape out of the left-hand spool, push it over the head, which is another spool. The head would read the magnetic audio and video message transmit that to the TV, and then the other spools would basically put the tape back onto the VHS, the second spool. So the tape on your left-hand side would get smaller as you watched your film, and the tape on the right-hand side, the spool would get larger. And once it ran out, the movie was over. And so the drawback to something like this compared to a DVD, HD, DVD, Blu-ray, etc., was that there was a lot of moving parts. So it was common for you to watch like 15 or 20 tapes and then you develop a problem. The problem could be anything. Any one of those moving parts, it gets dirty, it's a little bit slow, it's sticking, you know, it's too hot, it's too cold, whatever. Then your picture quality starts to suffer. The tape could actually freeze up inside the VHS uh, player, the VCR. So when you eject it, the tape doesn't come out and then it like wrinkles and that affects the picture quality. And so with a complicated device, with all these moving parts, a lot could go wrong. So there's a whole cottage industry basically devoted to cleaning VCRs, which uh, VCR stands for video cassette recorder, or fixing them or replacing parts or getting stuck tapes out of the VCR. And just so many different things could go wrong. If you spilled water on it, it wouldn't work. The picture quality would suffer. If it was too hot or too cold, the same thing would happen. If the tape was wrinkled or got snagged, again, the picture quality would, would suffer as well. So by today's standards, the VHS ta tape was very cumbersome. And uh, the same thing with the VCR, the, the player was also very cumbersome. And there's a lot of chances for something to go wrong or for it to break or for there to be some sort of error. But at the time, people really loved the system and you know it became hugely popular until DVDs eventually took over the entire market. So if you stayed with me this far, I wanna take a little break, do something fun, take a step back and basically do a WTF moment. And I want you to think about this three letter 
abbreviation circus that we have going on right now. We have a VHS, a VCR, and they're all played on the CRT back when we had the WWF, which still meant the World Wrestling Federation. And that goes through even today where we have the DVD or the DVD-R. So for some reason or another, we're in like a three-letter abbreviation circus when it comes to the TVs and playing discs or CDs or DVDs or VCRs. Kind of makes you think that we live in the Matrix, but we probably don't. Now I want to touch on something else, and this will be an interesting story and it's going to tie into the next segment of the podcast. But if you thought you were really cool because you survived the format wars between Blu-ray and HD DVD, well, you'll want to think again. Uh, Some of us older millennials were veterans of the first format war. Yes, there were multiple format wars. Format War 1 and Format War 2. Most people have forgotten about Format War 1. Now, Format War 1 was a format war between different types of VHS tapes. On one side, you had Sony, which had invented what was known as the Betamax VHS tape. And on the other side, there was JVC, another Japanese company that had invented the VHS tape, or what would become known as the VHS tape. So, spoiler alert, JVC won the format war and the VHS tape reigned supreme over the Betamax tape. But initially, in the mid-70s, there were two competing technologies that were the two main um, recording technologies. The the Beta tape, or what's known as the Betamax, developed by Sony, which initially gained a lot of popularity, and many people still today will tell you that when they watch Betamax tapes from Sony, they actually have a little bit higher quality in terms of the picture resolution and recording quality and also higher sound playback. So if you had the Betamax, its main advantage was higher quality video and sound, especially when you were recording something. Because remember, the home video market wasn't established back when VCRs came out. People almost exclusively used VCRs to record shows off of their television. Now on the other side was the JVC, technology, and this is what later became known as the VHS tape, it didn't have as good of quality of sound or video recording, but what proved pivotal was that the JVC technology was able to record for longer per video cassette. So if you were to buy a Sony Betamax player and then a Sony Betamax video cassette, you could only record for about an hour, a little bit over an hour. But if you bought the JVC model with the VHS tape, you were able to record for up to two hours. And it just so happened to be that the two-hour time recording was much more convenient for what people wanted to record. Because in the early days, the 70s, most people wanted to record sports programs, um, some of the movies that were broadcast over your typical analog TV channels and things like that. And so they needed that two-hour recording time. But there was pretty fierce competition between Sony and between JVC and what format was going to win out over the other. So if you had a Sony Betamax player, you could record things from your TV, but once you recorded onto a Betamax cassette, you couldn't then insert that into any sort of Sony device. Okay, and this was vice versa too. So if you recorded something on a JVC device, then you couldn't take that video cassette and put it into a Sony 
you know, player at the time and then replay whatever you recorded back. So they were two separate. And there was a couple other formats of, of VCRs and things like that, but they never really caught on. The two main ones that really were going neck and neck were the Sony Betamax and the JVC VCR or VHS tape. And ultimately, because of the recording time, the, the JVC ended up winning the first format or, and that was almost ubiquitously used all throughout the 80s and 90s uh, through the kind of explosion of the home video market. But like with any format more, war, excuse me, you had people who had adopted the Sony Betamax and they really stuck through it. So I, I knew a couple families in the 80s that, you know, had a Betamax and they continued to use it and it took them a really long time, these kind of stragglers, to go ahead and, and adopt the JVC VHS tape. Uh, but by the mid-80s, you really couldn't get or purchase Betamax CDs or even or Betamax VHS tapes or even rent them at stores. So once the rental market took off, then almost no one who hadn't bought one many years before had used or or even thought about the Betamax. But there's always, you know, you go to a party or whatever and the one person like, oh, that's a VHS tape. Man, Betamax is superior and they'd be hemming and hawing and things like that. But again, you couldn't go out and watch a movie on Betamax. It was very difficult to do. So it faded out pretty quickly. But probably from about 1975 to maybe 81 or 82, there was still a pretty big split and the format wars took a lot of years to you know come to resolution and for people to settle on that JVC format and again this is just another opportunity for me to touch back and tell you that Japan was crushing it in the 70s and 80s the United States had not really developed the VCR technology or VHS technology that Japan had developed. And so this huge rush of consumer electronics was coming from Japan, which was booming at the time. And U.S. companies were really, you know, kind of way behind the ball on this. Now, I told you that story because I want to tell you this one. And if you don't know about the first format war, then what I'm going to tell you next isn't going to make a whole lot of sense. But when the VCR first came out, it really freaked people out. And one of the biggest kind of anxieties that came out of that was from these big, powerful companies that produced film content. And it actually resulted in a controversy that went all the way up to the Supreme Court. So believe it or not, the act of recording something onto a video cassette tape, whether it was Betamax or JVC, because these are the early days, um, was very controversial. And Universal Pictures, and I believe Disney, tried to put a stop to this. So you can imagine that the VCR comes out and it's really cool because this had never been done before you can record whatever you want to off of TV and then watch it whenever you have time. But the big problem with this was that you're recording something that for all intents and purposes had been copyrighted by some sort of major studio. Uh, there wasn't a huge independent film or TV market back in the late 70s or late 80s. Literally almost all the media content was produced by a handful of studios. Okay, some of the most powerful being Disney and Universal Studios. 
And so once the VCR actually became affordable for most people to buy and started to gain in popularity, it really freaked out studios because studios were thinking that they'd spend all this money to produce top-notch television or movie content and then they broadcast that and they make their money by getting people to watch what they broadcast on TV and then collecting advertising revenue as part of their program. But if you had a VCR, you could put a VHS tape in, you could record whatever show you wanted to watch and then after it's done recording, you put it in, you watch it, but you fast forward through all the commercials. So these production companies would essentially be producing, or this was the fear, they'd be essentially producing TV shows, hoping to get advertising revenue from having the viewers watch in real time or in reruns the advertisements. But if you could skip that because you could record the show on a VCR onto a cassette tape and then fast forward it, that would be a huge threat to the advertising revenue that all these companies would earn from producing the original content. And so from the company's perspective, they were spending a lot of money because they had to buy all the equipment to record these shows and they had to pay actors and writers and develop scripts and do all these sort of things so they can develop content so that they could broadcast it and they get as most viewers as possible and all those viewers would tune in and kind of an exchange for tuning in they would show you a few advertisements the advertisers would pay the film company or the production company and they would make money and that was their business model until the vcr became affordable for most families now if you've ever watched certain tv shows or film broadcasts like you're watching an nfl game for example or you rented a home movie back in the days there was always a really strong warning before any of it started and always said this work is copyrighted by the nfl universal pictures or disney and that actually meant something and it still means something today because if you own a copyright that gives you a certain bundle of rights so if you own a copyright, it typically lets you, um, if you're the, works, the, the person who's created the work, a copyright vests in the work. And if you put the proper symbol and notify people, you have a copyright. And the copyright is something that allows you to control who copies or reproduces the work, um, who displays or performs the protected, the protected copyrighted work, who makes you know, derivative works, who reproduces the work, who distributes the work. So it's a very powerful legal right that really restricts who can, you know, redistribute or redisplay. And if they want to do that, they typically would have to pay you some sort of licensing fee or something like that for use of your copyright. And who has copyrights? Well, these big production studios. And who's potentially violating these copyrights? Well, it's anyone who'd purchased a VCR and was recording something off of TV. So you could imagine that the big production studios viewed the VCR as a legitimate threat to their business model, which included releasing television shows and producing television shows and also movies. So what ended up happening was that in 1976, not 86, 1976, Universal Pictures brought a suit against Sony and their Betamax video recording system. And the suit basically looked to punish anyone 
who had had who had purchased the VCR and who had used the VCR to record a program. And essentially, what Universal Pictures said, and many other production studios were on board with with this. They basically said that if you sold someone a VCR, you were basically enabling the person who purchased it, the consumer, to commit massive amounts of copyright infringement. And so as a consequence of that, Sony would have to pay Universal Pictures a $250 fine for every VCR they sold and for every program that was copyrighted that was recorded by someone who owned a VCR. So essentially... By selling VCRs, Sony was enabling in massive copyright infringement among the population. And again, the suit was brought in 1976, and so that's when the Betamax was still kind of a thing. Remember the format wars that we just talked about? So that's why it's not uh, Universal Pictures versus JVC and their VHS. So initially, the production studio brought their suit against Sony in 1976, and their goal really was to stop the sale of VCRs and from people using the VCRs. So I want you to kind of take a step back and think about that in the greater context of things. So we have a new technology that's emerged, and this theme will show up again and again in this podcast, okay? But something new, something that's a game changer, a quote-unquote disruptor if you're a millennial like I am, it comes onto the market, and really the current set of laws aren't equipped to deal with this new phenomenon. You know, the the last Copyright Act revision, I believe, was in, was that I think 19, around 1900, 1909, maybe something like that. So the the Copyright Act had, had gone through a big update and revision in 1976, but again, this didn't take into account, you know, VCRs and all the technology that it developed. Primarily, the, the update was to deal with things like the recording of music, which had occurred uh, and kind of proliferated prior to the early, you know, 19, 1900s update uh, to the, the Copyright Act. So, so a suit was brought. Sony, the, the seller of the, the Betamax, and at the time it was called VTR technology, VCR and VHS hadn't caught on yet. So again, VTR is just going to stand for, for videotape recorder. Uh, again, it's, it's early. We're still using Betamax, but that's how early this was. So in order to get to the Supreme Court, you have to go through a couple different levels, right? The first level is a district court. And so because many of these studios were based in California, Universal brought their core, their suit in California to a district court. And the district court actually decided for the VCR holders, the people, the, the people who had the VCRs or VTRs as they were known at the time. And so then Universal appealed that. It went up to the circuit court and the Ninth Circuit, uh, the circuit court, that's the appeals court, actually decided in favor of the studio companies. So if that decision were to hold, then we wouldn't have DVR or TiVo or anything like that today because this decision is really kind of a harbinger for the future. It deals with you know recording technology and reproducing technology. So think about this as kind of the foundation from which a lot of other case law would be developed going forward and you're talking about things like burning a dvd or a cd on your computer or recording a program on a tivo or dvr or hopper or any of those things that you use this was the first time this was really litigated so they went at the district court so you can use a vcr if you have it at the district court but then district court is overturned at the appellate court and then it goes all the way up to bum 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 
the Supreme Court, the highest court of the land, Washington, D.C., just a few, you know, blocks from the White House. This is the Supreme Court, and this is one of the major cases that has been forgotten by history and almost nobody talks about, but it was a huge deal because the outcome of this case really determined the future of being able to record things, MP3s, Napster, TiVo, DVD, you know, CD-ROM, CD rewritables, all that stuff. This case laid the foundation for, and it was a really close case. This case was a five to four decision at the Supreme Court. And even though the initial case was filed in 1976, it took eight years to wind its way all the way up through the appeal process and reach the Supreme Court in 1984. So you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, okay, this case is going before the Supreme Court. It's the highest court in the land, but it deals with technology. So I'm sure the court is going to be stacked with tech geeks like Bill Gates and Steve Wozniak and all these people. And they're going to appreciate the significance of what a VHS tape is and a VCR is. Well, you're wrong. So this brings us to the point of the episode where we look at the Supreme Court as it stood in 1984, the court that is going to hear one of the most monumental cases ever decided regarding copyright law, home video use, home recording use, and all those other big issues, including like the Napster case that came, you know, at least 16 years later. So in 1984, the chief justice of the Supreme Court was a guy named Warren E. Berger. He was a Republican who was 75 years old. He was appointed to a lower court by Dwight Eisenhower in 1956 and then appointed to the Supreme Court as the Chief Justice by Richard Nixon in 1969. Okay, And again, you're going to get used to the theme of really old people who probably had never even used a VCR or a VHS tape being on the Supreme Court and deciding the fate of this monumental case. Again, please vote if you're a millennial. Now, in addition to the chief justice, there are eight associate justices. The most senior was, I believe, William Brendan Jr. He was Democrat. He was even older than the, the chief justice, who was 75. He was 76 years old at the time of the decision. He was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1956 by Dwight Eisenhower. So he had been on the court for almost 30 years before hearing this case. And remember, the last substantive update to the copyright statute was in the early 1900s. And he probably hadn't seen any other Supreme Court level cases that dealt with this level of technology. Okay, next up was Associate Justice Byron White. He was a Democrat, 65 years old at the time of the decision. He was appointed to the court in 1962 by John F. Kennedy. So he was on the court for 22 years before this case came up. He was by far the most superficially interesting Supreme Court justice who's sitting for this decision. Um, he was a, a standout freak athlete in college. His nickname was quote-unquote Wizard. He was the only Supreme Court justice from the state of Colorado. His Wizard nickname was from playing football for the University of Colorado Buffalo football team. Uh, where he was a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy. After graduating from college, he went to the NFL, and he played for the Pittsburgh Pirates, who are, are now the Pittsburgh Steelers. 
and he stopped playing professional football after three or four years to join the Navy because World War II had started. So if you have any all-star cards from the NFL from 1938 to 41, he was the number one rusher and a Pro Bowl uh, athlete in 1938 through 41 before joining up to the Navy uh, in 1942 for World War II. So he joins the Navy. He serves in a variety of positions. After he gets out of the Navy and World War II is concluded, he went to Yale Law School and ended life on the extremely dull note of being a Supreme Court justice for, you know, 20 or 30 years. Also on the panel is Thurgood Marshall, a remarkable individual. He's a Democrat. He was 74 years old at the time of the decision. He's the first African-American person to be a justice on the Supreme Court. He was also the Solicitor General of the United States, and he was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1961 by President John F. Kennedy. So again, we have no spring chickens here. All people who are at least 65 years old, most who are in their mid to late 70s, are deciding a case dealing with cutting-edge technology. Next up, we have Harry Blackman. He's a Republican, also 74, same age as Thurgood Marshall at the time of the decision, appointed to the Supreme Court in 1970 by Richard Nixon. He's famous for authoring the Roe versus Wade decision, which again was not nearly as close as the, the decision we're about to discuss here. Roe versus Wade was, I believe, 7 to 2. And spoiler alert, the VHS Betamax tape was a 5 to 4 decision which was extremely close in favor of allowing people to record things into the VCR. So anyways, Lewis Powell Jr. Uh, was actually asked by President Nixon to join the Supreme Court in 1969. He refused, but the second time Nixon came calling uh, in 1971 and asked him to join the Supreme Court, he did. Um, he wasn't really happy about accepting the nomination and his biggest worry was that he was taking a huge pay cut so he's an extremely successful corporate lawyer uh, around virginia at the time and um he would have to i think his his salary was cut by like five or six times per year so his wife was also rumor has it really unhappy as well that he was accepting the position but he decided to do his duty and was appointed to the supreme court um in 1971 he's also a world war ii veteran and was 77 again at the time this case was heard so there's three more justices on the court they're all the youngest justices that we've discussed so far um william rehnquist was another associate justice he's a republican he was 60 years old at the time of the decision uh, he was an extremely bright standout law student who graduated first in his class from stanford law school one of his classmates was Sandra Day O'Connor, who was also another associate justice who's on the panel who's decided this case. He was also a clerk when he was uh, had graduated from law school, so he'd clerked for the Supreme Court for Justice Robert Jackson. And there was a bit of controversy because he actually wrote a memo up, you know, in favor of upholding what's the separate but equal um, uh, standard um, when the Brown versus Board of Education case was up before the the supreme supreme court um he would actually later become the chief justice under ronald reagan so reagan would promote him to the chief justice position sometime in the 80s and he would hold that uh for quite some time um until he actually i think died in office and he's known as one of the most conservative justices in the modern era 
Now, next up, we have John P. Stevens. He's a little bit older than William Rehnquist. Uh, he's a Republican. He was 64 years old at the time of the decision. He was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1975 by Gerald Ford. He also, like Rehnquist, was a, was a clerk to the Supreme Court uh, for a previous Supreme Court justice. And he actually was the third longest serving justice on the court. He actually served for over 34 years. So he was appointed in 1975, and I think he retired sometime in 2010. Uh, at the ripe old age of 90, which was the second oldest Supreme Court justice ever to sit on the bench before his retirement. Uh, and last, but certainly not least, was Sandra Day O'Connor, also Republican, only 54 at the time of the decision. So she was the youngest member of the court by about six years. Next youngest was Rehnquist at 60. Uh, and she's the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, and she was the latest. She was appointed by Ronald Reagan in 1981. She also, with Rehnquist, went to Stanford Law School. But interestingly enough, when she graduated in 1952, she was not hired at any law firm. So she applied at more than 40 law firms and was not hired at any of them, primarily because she was a woman. Um, and so that's the, that's the court. That's, that's who's sitting down and who's deciding this epic case. So we have um, nine justices. Only one of them is younger than 60 years old. And they're sitting down and looking at VCR technology. Okay, so we have the people on the Supreme Court. They're all really old. They probably don't use VCRs. But what is the question? So remember when I said that when you have a copyright, you have a bundle of rights. You, you have the right to this whatever creation of art you've done. You can reproduce it. You can perform it, things like that. And if someone does that who doesn't hold the copyright, then you can stop them or you can charge them a fine. But there's a couple important exceptions to a copyright holder. And one of those exceptions is known as the fair use exception, okay? And so fair use is an exception to copyright law, meaning that if you're a copyright holder, you can't prevent someone for, from using your material if it falls under the quote-unquote fair use exemption. So fair use is, uh, the most typical example is something that you take an excerpt, so a few seconds or a little bit longer than that of a song just to show someone what the song is. Uh, if you're using it for criticism, uh, news reporting, um, you know, research without need, for, you know, if you do any of these things, you don't really need permission. Uh, teaching is another example, right? So if something's like newsworthy or things like that, there's a broad umbrella of, of using things for fair use. So the tension in this decision really falls between two different positions, okay? So the argument of Universal Studios, and again, we'll discuss how this was a bit of a premature argument, really was that the VCR was used for massive amounts of copyright infringement. You could copy VHS tapes, you could copy TV shows, these were all copyrighted. But on the other side of it, Sony's position was basically, well, yeah, maybe you could use it for all these infringing acts, but you could also use it for a lot of other acts which wouldn't be infringing. They'd be fair use acts, right? So a lot of people uh, didn't mind if you copied their television show or things like that. So the VCR was kind of right down the middle. You could use it for a lot of things that would infringe a copyright, and you could also use it for a lot of things that would not infringe a copyright. And so another 
part of this was what's known as quote unquote time shifting. And that was where people would record TV shows that they couldn't watch and then watch them at a later date. And so that was also deemed something that, that was on the side of the uh, VCR owner, essentially that you know people wanted to record shows and then watch them later, regardless of whether or not they could fast forward through the commercials, that was still kind of viewed as a valid use by the court. So ultimately the court decided that VCRs or VTRs, again, this is all through the decision, it's VTR, 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 um, they were, you know, fair use and they could be sold and they didn't encompass this massive copyright infringement. And again, uh, unbeknownst to the, the movie studios and things like that, the case was brought in 1976 and the home video market just absolutely exploded. And the, you know, uh, holders of the copyrights like Universal Studios and other companies like that, they ended up making just tons of money in the absolutely booming VHS home market. And so it had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court and go through all this rigmarole with copyrights and things like that, starting in 1976 when almost nobody had a, v, a VCR uh, and then ending in 1984 to actually open the floodgates and create this market. And although the companies initially thought that it would be a disaster, and that's why they sued and they wanted to stop people from using the VCR, it actually turned into a really big boondoggle. And uh, the box offices continued to grow, and people rented videos, and there was a home video market, and they made money even after the, the films were released in the theaters, and, and things like that. So it's kind of a no harm, no foul. But this is just an example to show you of everything that people went through uh, to kind of bring this new technology to light uh, in, in the 80s and, and, and 70s. And again, this was a really close case. It was a five to four decision. And I'd hate to think about what would happen if it went the other way, but ultimately was decided in favor at the highest court of the land, uh, five to four in favor of allowing people to continue to have and to use their VCRs. Now, if it had gone the other way, people who own VCRs would, would be in line for pretty massive copyright infringement fees and injunctions and things like that, so they wouldn't be able to use it, but that's not what happened. And again, the fear on the part of the film studios was that the VCR would make them obsolete, they wouldn't have enough money, but that's kind of the opposite of what happened, and the film industry continued to flourish well into the 80s, 90s, 2000s, you know, um, uh, you name it. So coming towards the end of the podcast, I just want to go over a few anecdotes. So again, we went over the, the fact that the Supreme Court actually allowed people to use VCRs and copy things. And as a VCR kid myself, I just want to let people know that a couple like idiosyncrasies that have been forgotten with time. So the first one was that, yes, you could copy things off of the TV and you could copy other VHS tapes. But you needed to have like a certain TV to be ordered to copy a VHS tape to another VHS tape. But again, because a VHS tape is an analog device, every time you made a copy of something, you actually lost quality. So if you were seeing something on TV and you made a copy of it, it was worse than what you'd actually see on TV. And every time you played it back, the picture would be a little bit fuzzier and the sound wouldn't be as good. That's the same thing if you're trying to copy another VHS tape. 
So yes, potentially there's a huge copyright issue because you can go to the, the video store and you could rent a copy of Dances with Wolves or whatever the top video was, and you could make a copy of that. But the copy would not be as high quality as the original. And actually, in order to make the copy of, of, of an actual VHS tape that you bought or you rented from the movie store, you actually need to have two VCRs, sometimes two TVs, but you definitely needed two VCRs. And you had to have a TV that accommodated that kind of dual output, which again, kind of also reduced the quality. And so people would do interesting things like when Laserdisc came out that never really caught on in the, you know, like 94, 96 or stuff like that, they would actually hook up a Laserdisc player, which would be higher quality than a VHS tape, and then play that and then record the Laserdisc onto a VHS tape. So at one point in time, uh, I actually knew someone who had a copy, a VHS copy of the Laserdisc version of Pulp Fiction, and that was like a really cool thing. And so I want to actually end because we're coming up at almost an hour here. This is a really long, long podcast because we had to go through with all the Supreme Court justices and monumental Supreme Court decision. Um, I'll go ahead and give you my top screen gems. And by screen gems, these are not my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Uh, these are just movies that I had somehow or another came into my possession and I owned with my brothers and sisters or friends. And I watched over and over and over and over again. So uh, to the point where they almost got worn out. So throughout my childhood, uh, you're talking 85 through 95. Uh, these are the movies that I somehow owned and I would watch all the time. And um, here we go. So number 10 was, oh God, Home Alone. So Home Alone was a huge box office hit. I didn't see it in the theater, but I got a copy of the VHS because I won a spelling bee when I think I was in sixth grade. Um, and so the prize was a Home Alone video. And I watched it, and I thought it was funny, and I'd never watch it again. But every single Christmas and holiday season, my relatives, I'm guessing they were drunk off of eggnog or something like that, they would slap Home Alone into the VCR and they would love it. So every single Christmas from like whenever the movie came out, like 91 or 92, all the way to like 2000, we'd watch this multiple times and people would find it hilarious. Again, not my favorite movie, but this is a top 10 list of movies and VHS tapes that I watched the most. Coming in at number nine is going to go ahead and be Top Gun. Came out in 1986. I didn't see it in the theater. Tom Cruise, action-packed movie. I don't know how I got a VHS tape of this. Most of these tapes I don't really know how I got, but number nine is Top Gun. Number eight, Disney movie, Aladdin. I think I got this from my grandmother or my aunt. I loved it. My sister loved it. My brother loved it. We watched it probably like 40 times in the early 90s. Next up, number seven, Back to the Future. Um, Michael J. Fox, he just owned it, and this was one of the most popular VHS probably out there. Late 80s, early 90s, played it all the time. I watched it, loved it. My friends watched it at my house, so we played it again and again and again. Uh, number six, Spaceballs. This was a Mel Brooks film. 
First Mel Brooks film I had ever seen. Parody of Star Wars, Solid Gold. Obviously, you're going to play that again and again. Number five, this is where it gets serious, The Breakfast Club. You're talking about Judd Nelson and his, his band of misfits in detention. Oddly enough, the one thing I remember the most about this film, I don't know how, again, how I, we had this, but my dad really liked that film. And he's like, yeah, that's what life is, even though that's a Hollywood movie. And I was never, ever in detention. Uh, number four, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Uh, time travel, Napoleon, this film had it all. I watched that again and again and again. Number three, we're going with Steven Spielberg with The Goonies. Uh, if you're young and you like having adventures, then you're going to love this movie. Number two, uh, highly embarrassing, The Cutting Edge. This was mainly a 90s staple for me. I, I don't even know how you can do this film justice, but there's like a downtown hockey player and he loses his eyesight and he's working construction and he's recruited to be the partner for figure skating with like an uptown girl and they somehow have to bridge the gap between his like roughneck exterior and hockey playing thing but he really knows how to skate well and her growing up in rich family it's so cliche oh um but i probably saw the movie at least 10 times maybe 15. um number one rain man another tom cruise making the list twice number nine with top gun number one with rain man uh, Rain Man's a movie about someone who inherits a lot of money from his father, but he's autistic and has an estranged half-brother. Again, I don't know how I came into the possession of this VHS tape, but I did, and I watched it a ton of times, as did myself and my family, and this evening I, I watched into the late 90s for some reason. So if you guys have any other VHS tapes that you really liked and you want to submit, go ahead and do that. Emails will at tritonknowledge.com. And just to bring everything 100% full circle, remember I told you that the first movies in 1987 that I actually watched on the VHS tape are going to be King Solomon's Mines and um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And the last movie, the absolute last movie, this is when blockbusters were going out of business, etc., etc., Netflix was coming onto the scene, was I think Fight Club was the last VHS movie before I went to DVD that I watched in 2001. So it was a great 15, 14, 15 year period from uh, 87 when I got a, my first VCR and started work, watching films all the way through after the year 2000 when I was in college watching Fight Club before DVDs kind of took over. And so thanks for listening in. Again, will at tritonknowledge.com. If you have any questions or any anything you want clarified in the podcast, just let me know and I'll do my best to get right back to you. Until next time, this is Will signing out.